good morning. I'm really glad that you guys are here today. There's so many students that are out on spring break, and we pray that they're enjoying um, a little bit. Well, we've got some sun today, but pray that they may be enjoying a little bit more sun than even we are. Um, but we're excited about the opportunity that we have to continue in this series. I want to take a little survey. And so by a show of hands, and you're thinking, oh no, what is he about to ask us? Um, really quickly, raise your hand if you took a picture. I mean, like you were the one holding the camera, snap, click, print, um, in the last seven days, one week. If you've taken a picture in the last week, let's, let's see that hand. Okay, yeah, I totally have. If you've taken a picture um, just over this weekend, like in the last 72 hours, let's see the hands. Okay, if you took a picture in the last 24 hours, so sometime between yesterday morning and today, hands are still good. If you've already taken a picture today, raise your hand. Yep, I totally have. Um, now, if all of those pictures were taken on some sort of mobile device, throw that hand up again. Because without the presence of this, my hand wouldn't have gone up at all. I would not have been a person who took a picture had it not been for the fact that my phone also doubles as a camera to where we can take and post pictures. Now, photography has come a really, really, really long way. It's not quite, this understanding of what we have of you and I being able to take pictures is not quite 200 years old. Right? So even all the photographs that you look at in your history books, all, all of the images that you see that predate the early 1800s are, are, are images that someone else has rendered. Artists have come up with that as an idea of what something could have looked like controversial. Like, yeah, like, like in no way did we have photographs of Jesus. So all the pictures that I looked at, like in, like in Sunday school or vacation Bible school hanging out as a small child, none of those were accurate. Nobody was saying, okay, smile, Jesus. Like, and the Olin Mills was not around. Nobody was taking a yearbook photo of the disciples. There was not an annual that they could go back and look at. Because for us, photography is, 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 is newer than 200 years. And, and so in France, we get this whole like 19 to 1820s, 1830s, what we understand as photography. But it wasn't until that technology came to America that we got, of course, the very first selfie. Yeah, leave, give the French, they can invent photography, and then we can invent the selfie. In fact, this is the oldest recorded self-portrait um, that we have. In 1839, a guy in Pennsylvania named Robert Cornelius sat still for approximately 15 minutes so that his camera apparatus could take his own photograph. Good luck doing that with your children, trying to get them to sit still for 15 seconds, much less 15 minutes to take any sort of picture. And as some of y'all are looking at that, you're like, well, he was, he was kind of good looking. Like if this was taken today, all the thumbs up and the hearts and the likes would go like a little bit. He's like, he's kind of moody and brooding a little bit. It's probably because it was the 1800s and he had really bad teeth. Like he didn't want to show those um, because we don't know quite what that part would have looked like. The world of photography continues to change. And because of the presence of technology and social media, you and I can take pictures like professional photographers all the time. These numbers that I found were staggering. In excess of 350 million photos, 350 million photos are uploaded each day on Facebook. I did not even know that Facebook was still a big deal, but people are putting their pictures out there. In excess of 95 million photographs are being shared on Instagram each day. And there are now more than 290 billion photos circulating out there because of social media platforms. The neat thing about all these devices is 
the, the, the editing software that comes with it. Like you can change the lighting or the brightness or the zoom. Like you can totally edit. And it's bad news for professional photographers, but it's great news for us because we like to capture images in the moment. I did this picture this week. I visited um, one of the church partners in our house. His name is Bob Irby. He went to Mr. Bob's house and he has a, a hundred year old adding machine in his house. I took a picture of it. Um, it does complimentary math which I did not know what that was until I looked it up. There's no subtraction. You have to do complementary math if you're going to take something away, which blew my mind in general. We think today is new math. Well, that was new math to me. But this is an original photo. And then if you looked at it like on your phone, really close to Instagram, you see all the different filters that I use to make the photo. look. It's the same picture with just different filters applied to it. And we can do that today. Now, you can take a photograph this morning and apply all different filters to it, most of which are named after random things for the people that invented the filter itself. But we as Nashville, you know, we have our own filter. Some of you know this, some of you don't. It's kind of weird looking, but there's a Nashville filter named after our city, which is fantastic. Filters change the way that you see something. They change the way you approach any sort of subject. Every one of us brings a filter with us every time we open up this text. We're not just looking at an original manuscript like we would an original unedited photo. We're looking at this through the filter of our story, our history, our understanding of who God is and what he means. And as we dive into this series that's all about loving everyone always, we bring our own unique filters to that word too. Because you say the word love and we don't all come up with the exact same definition. Maybe we come up with the exact same definition, but we certainly don't come up with the exact same examples of what that love is because we look at love in different ways and we all approach it in different vantage points so that when you and I see the same image of a loving God who gave us his word and gave us his son, we approach it with different eyes. And the world around us is approaching this truth with different eyes. You see, people see this through the filter that they choose to look at it. So we're in the Gospel of Matthew today. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bible there, you can. It's the first book of the New Testament. We're not going to start there. We're going to start in the book of Hosea. But if you want to go ahead and cue it up and be in the book of Matthew chapter 9, you can. Matthew's what one uh, we call the synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason we call them synoptic is because they, they seem to have so much of the same content. They have the same story. They talk about the same events. In a lot of ways, they put it in the exact same order or timeline. And in some cases, they're using the exact same wording to describe something that's happening in the life of Jesus when he was walking on the earth, when he was born, when he was calling his disciples, when he was performing miracles and doing all these like teaching moments. Like we use the same material. And some scholars believe that each one of those three synoptic gospels were actually using this other source that we don't have copies of, that they must have been copying that and telling the story. And it doesn't matter where we get it from. What we understand is that each of those three gospels really shares a lot of the same content. But when in fact they do differ, when there are discrepancies in the order of a story or the wording of a story or what Jesus said at a specific moment, a lot of times we want to accuse the gospel writers of lying or telling a different story or saying that something was incongruent with what actually happened in the day. The truth is that they're just unique writers applying their own specific filters to the story. We call Matthew the Jewish gospel. 
Because largely writing, you know, around 30 to 40 years after Jesus had died, been buried, and resurrected, after the church had launched, after the Apostle Paul had come, these guys began to write down the story of Jesus so that it could be circulated among the early church and particularly people that weren't walking with Jesus in those days. What was going to happen to the generation that came after us if Christ did not, in fact, return in their lifetime? We better write this down so that it can circulate among the masses so that other people can know after we're dead and gone because a bunch of those brothers were killed, after we're dead and gone, they can know the story of the eyewitness accounts of people who lived and walked with Jesus. Matthew wrote to a largely Jewish audience attempting to get those Jewish brothers and sisters to believe that Jesus Christ was in fact the long-awaited Messiah that they knew through reading Old Testament scriptures and through studying Old Testament scriptures and through being uh, uh, someone who subscribed to the Old Testament law that there was a Christ who would come. Matthew was wanting to point out to them in their Jewishness that Jesus was it. So all of the stories, all of the moments, all of the lectures, all of the miracles, Matthew has a unique way of pointing it back to the Jewish people in a way to convince them to believe. He, he writes of the Old Testament law and of the Old Testament prophecy with a filter to help them understand. You see, they looked at the Old Testament law and the Old Testament God as one who had created them, who had called them, who had set them apart for a special purpose, but who had given them a law that they better follow. And they, like a lot of people in our day, looked at the Old Testament scriptures as presenting to them a God of wrath and a God of judgment, a God that says, you better do it my way or you can hit the road. There were so many moments when discipline came into the life of Israel through the Old Testament that they certainly looked at it as if God was out to prosper them, but only if they obeyed. And instead, what they saw was a picture of a God who was taking names and, and, and counting the things that you did right and counting the things that you did wrong and holding the things that you did wrong against you and not only you, but your whole people group. Enter the Pharisees who came in between the two testaments to teach people how to carefully obey that law so that people could appropriately worship God. And Matthew wants to take that viewpoint. He, he wants to take that perspective of who God was. He wants to take that scripture and not move it out of the way, but apply a filter to it that was there from the beginning. See, Matthew presents a gospel to us. It's in your notes this morning where Jesus invites us to reread all of what we see presented in the Jewish scripture, the Old Testament, with a new filter, with a predominant view of God's mercy. Mercy is defined as kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted. People who seem to be walking in desperation instead of being punished for their sin, God is applying mercy to it. And even though people then and even though people now look at the God of the Old Testament as one of judgment and wrath, Matthew's inviting us to see it from the perspective of God's mercy. If you were to read in the book of Hosea chapter 6, it's an Old Testament prophecy book. Starting with verse 4, God says, what can I do with you, Ephraim, this, this Jewish city, this people group? What can I do with you, Judah, this tribe of God's people? Your love, this is verse 4, is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Your love doesn't last. Your love is like a vapor. It's here for a second and it's immediately gone. 
And then we get the wrath part. Verse 5 says, therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. And then my judgments go forth like the sun. It's understandable as to why they would have been afraid of this God. Then he says in verse 6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. The word love that people lacked in verse 4 and the word mercy that God required in verse 6 are actually the exact same Hebrew vocabulary word. I want you guys to say it with me this morning. It's chesed. You gotta, you gotta sound like you're trying to conjure up a little bit of spit when you say it. Like, it's easy to do during allergy season. It's chesed. And it literally means the loving devotion, faithfulness, favor, goodness, kindness, loyalty, and mercy unchanging love of God shows up 246 times in the Hebrew Old Testament translated as each one of those words over and over and over again see ultimately the mercy that God wants us to display to others the mercy that he so freely gives to us is devotion and kindness it's loyalty to him and to the narrative that he wants to create in us Matthew, through the telling of the story of Jesus, invites us to look at that God, to look at that creator, to look at that sustainer, to look at that savior through a different filter, one that understands this idea of mercy. How do I know? Because he relates it back to his own call story. How Matthew even became one of the people that was following Jesus in the first place. If you're in Matthew chapter 9 with me, we start with verse 9 and it says, As Jesus went on from there, that means that he was somewhere before and now he's transitioning to a new moment. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, who we understand to be the author or the subject matter of this book. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, to understand the weight of this verse, you have to understand how those people viewed tax collectors. What was the filter in which they looked at people who collected taxes in those days? See, any time one nation would conquer another nation in antiquity, in these Old Testament, New Testament times, in this case, Rome has now conquered the region of Israel and Judah where Jesus was born and where all these people live, the the Jewish religion, the center point of their faith, like Rome is in charge. And, And they would come in and they would want to excise these incredible taxes on all of the people that lived there. And they would choose a local publican to be their representative among the people and collect those taxes. So they would choose a local Jew to be the person who was responsible for collecting those taxes and distributing them back to Rome. They would equip them with centurions, with guards, so that they could go in by force and make people pay their taxes, and they taxed everything. If you wanted to walk along a Roman road, you paid a tax. If you wanted to bring a donkey along that road, you paid a tax on the donkey. You were taxed on the cargo that you brought with you. You were taxed on the people, the number of people in your family that walked along that road. You were taxed, obviously, if you owned property. You were taxed if you tried to farm something on that property. Taxation was excessive. And the people hated Rome because of it. And if they hated Rome because of the taxation, then they hated the people who were called on by Rome to take those taxes even more. The Jewish people hated the tax collectors. They were the worst of the worst possible people. And what these guys could do is they could go in and say, well, Rome is going to take this cut, but I'm allowed to charge you whatever I want. And they would add to it so that they could keep the difference as a profit for themselves to the Jews If you were in cahoots with Rome as a tax collector, that made you a traitor. 
And because you were consulting with so many Gentiles, people that weren't Jewish, that also made you unclean. So to be a tax collector in in this day and age, to sit at the booth and to collect people's fees, like Matthew was doing, was to deny your Jewishness and deny your right to be near to God. Scripture says that while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, so wait a minute, Jesus didn't associate with these people. He ate with these people. In their culture, to eat with someone, to break bread together, to have a meal with one another was an indication of the closest, most intimate type of friendship. Hospitality was paramount in this culture. And so if you went into somebody's house, that indicated a relationship. And that's where they found Jesus. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Apparently, Matthew knew how to throw a party and who was he going to invite but the other people who liked him because most of the people in the community who weren't tax collectors would not have been in friendship with Matt. Who else is he going to bring? So he brought more tax collectors and more people that were labeled as sinners. When the Pharisees saw this, verse 11, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Such unsavory people, people that are going to make him unclean, just being guilty by association on hearing this. Like Jesus overheard their words and their question. And he knew what they were talking about. He said this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Where have we heard that before? Oh, we heard it in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. He says, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is quoting for this audience, this this group of Pharisees who who knew the law, who knew the prophecy, who wanted to be the very best of the best when it came to understanding, explaining, and following what the Old Testament said. He takes that word that they would have memorized, that they would have known, that they would have immediately been able to attribute to the prophet Hosea, and he says, I want you to look at that scripture that you memorized, that scripture that you know. I want you to understand it through the filter of the mercy that God wants to give to people. God invites us to look at his story through a filter called mercy. Jesus looked at these people. It's in your notes today. He saw dreadful sinners as people. With, with really, really deep needs. I look at that and I, I kind of recognize that this world would be immediately at least a fraction better. If I would look at all the people who perpetrate the, the worst of the worst ills of society as not the animals that I think that they are, but instead as people with deep, deep hurts, deep, deep wounds, And deep, deep needs that only the love of Jesus can fill. How many times are you ready to write somebody off? Not just somebody, but a whole whole group of somebodies. Or or, or a whole, whole country of somebodies as just the worst of the worst enemies of God when it comes to their behavior or their beliefs. And we're invited... By the very fact that Jesus sat down with a guy who collected taxes to begin to view even people. I mean, who's the worst of the worst that you would imagine? And instead of judging them and holding them accountable for their sin, 
We're supposed to recognize them as people who have a deep, deep need for the healing love that only the mercy of God can provide through Christ. When I look at somebody's problems, somebody's sin, as an illustration of how, they mu- how very much they need Jesus, I'm far more apt to apply mercy and to apply grace. This whole series, we're kind of asking this Andy Stanley question. He's a, a pastor in Atlanta and an author and written a whole bunch of Bible studies and books and stuff. And he kind of invites us to... To, to answer this question, like to really ask ourselves over and over again and to be willing to provide an answer for the idea of what does love require of me? What does the love, as it's described in this book by Jesus Christ, what does the, what does the love, and if you want to take that to be the chesed that we discover in the Old Testament as a translation of that word, what is the love, what is the loyalty, what is the mercy, what is the kindness, what is the goodness of God through Jesus compel us to do for others, and not just any others, but even to our very enemies, what does that require of us? See, ultimately, the call of every believer in Jesus Christ it is to be a disciple. And that's what was going on in this moment. Jesus was calling Matthew to come and to be his disciple. And the way that we define disciple as according to scripture and the way that we kind of like base level root understand it here is that a disciple is a growing follower of Jesus Christ. You see, we're never fully grown. We're always in the process of growing. That's why that word in the definition is so important. Like a disciple is a growing follower and follower that just indicates to us that we're going after him. So we're growing followers of Jesus. And it's imperative that we put Christ at the end of that sentence because we're not just following some great moral teacher. We're not just following some like some like first century do-gooder. We're not just following some revolutionary that started this impact. We're not just following somebody who could heal people. We're not just following somebody who taught great lessons about how we're supposed to live and treat others. We're following the Christ, the Messiah, who was willing to go to a cross and lay down his own life so that you and I could have access to God. And so to be a disciple is to be a growing and ever maturing follower, somebody who's after Jesus in hard pursuit. We are following Jesus not just because he's good, not just because he's a teacher, not just because he showed us how to love, but we are following the Christ who laid down his life because of that love. So what does it mean to be a growing follower? Well, growing follower is taking intentional, not accidental. It's not just going to happen by osmosis. It's not going to happen because we sleep with a Bible beside our bed. It's not going to happen just because you show up here on Sunday mornings. It's not going to happen just because you attend a weekly Bible study and you open it up and you read it. It's not going to happen even if you memorize the very words that are in it. You've got to take intentional steps towards Christ-likeness, like the ones that were described in the passage of Scripture that we read before from the book of Romans, what it means to love others. None of that happens on accident. Your love is not going to be sincere because you hope it will. Your love is going to be sincere because you take intentional steps towards the sincerity of that love and because you're willing to remove the filter that you bring to the table and to put on the one that God asks us to put on because love equals sacrifice. Love equals giving something up for another person. Love equals not holding somebody's wrongs against them but understanding that Christ died to forgive them. None of that's going to happen in our lives unless we're taking intentional steps to be more like Jesus, who asked a tax collector to be one of his. In that moment, Jesus was teaching his audience something. He was teaching his already disciples something. He was saying to them, 
even the worst of the worst can change. And even the worst of the worst can be capable of God's very best. Jesus wasn't the only rabbi in Rome. He might very well have been the only one willing to call a tax collector to be his pupil. This is ultimately a really a really weird thing about scripture. You see, if you carefully read the Gospels, you'll find this hated group of people often painted in a very favorable light. You see, in this moment, Jesus was willing to call a tax collector. In another story, Jesus highlights the fact that a tax collector is humbly and mournfully and lovingly bringing worship to God. In another moment, he looks at a tax collector who climbed a tree, Zacchaeus, and he says, come down, I'm going to go to your house. And that guy, Zacchaeus, was so changed that day, he decided to give back everything that he had robbed from the people around him, multiplied time and time over. You see, this group of people that everybody in this Jewish culture hated, the people that they thought were so far from God, there was absolutely no hope that they could ever be in right relationship with him, are often painted in a favorable light in these very scriptures and in these very stories. And that presents a problem to us because a lot of people want to accuse the New Testament writers. This is just a side note about how we get the part of the Bible that we understand and even the parts that are kind of fuzzy to us. Like there are scholars today that don't want to believe this. And they want to say to us that each one of these gospel writers is just trying to put a veneer on what actually happened so that we'll believe something that was not actually true. Well, if that was the case, if Matthew was trying to apply a veneer to the Jesus story so that 30, 40 years later, or even 300, 400 years later, you and I, or this Jewish audience, would begin to look at Jesus with favorable eyes, he would not have included the part of the story of his own call. He would not have included the part of the story where the tax collector was celebrated for his worship. He would not have included the moments where Jesus came to interact with those people and to love those people. If he was trying to attract a Jewish audience, he would not have included the parts that were favorable about the people that the Jewish audience did not approve of or like. But he was attempting to apply a different filter. One that wasn't holding these people accountable for their sin, but one that was offering them the mercy and the grace of God in its place. This, this, this mercy filter is, is really good news for us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. It's interesting to note that Jesus didn't just call a tax collector... He also called a revolutionary zealot. And if Jesus could create a, a friendship and a brotherhood and a peace among those two, then you know that the salvation that he brought is real. He says, I want to take this burden away from you. I, I want to give you something that's light. I want to give you my peace. You contrast that and the way that he allowed the tax collectors to come near to him with the way that he approached the Pharisees who were far from him. In Matthew chapter 24, he looked at the crowds and his disciples and he said, the teachers of the law, that's the Pharisees, they sit at Moses' seat. You must be careful to do everything they tell you, 
But don't do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. You know what they do? Jesus said, it's in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 23, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus looked at an audience of people who felt like everybody was just piling on the law, piling on the rules, piling on the guilt, piling on the frustration, and instead offered them his peace and his rest. How did he do this? He came Not to call righteous people or people that thought they were righteous, but ultimately to call sinners. He came to hang out with sick people. People who he knew were in desperate need for a love that only he could provide. This this mercy filter of Christ-likeness in our lives, it, it means that We're taking intentional steps towards Jesus and that we are out there actively doing the inviting ourselves. That we become Jesus in this story and we go up to the tax collector's booth, the people that we think are the worst of the worst, the people that we assume are the farthest of the far away from Jesus and we invite them to know him and to follow him with the supposition that Christ alone can change everything there is to possibly change about them. For us, That means investing in relationships. For us, that means introducing people to the gospel story of a Christ who came to meet our needs. I'm excited to share with you a little bit of a story this morning. Um, It's a testimony from someone who attends our Franklin campus, and it's this great picture of what it means to just walk across the driveway and invest in a relationship for the purpose of somebody else seeing something about Jesus in you. Check out Sarah Hunter's story. My name is Kristen Von Warlhoff. I'm from Southern California originally. I moved here five years ago. So I moved here to this neighborhood in 2014, and we didn't know anyone in Franklin aside from a couple people that I had just got hired to work with. So I didn't have any friends. I was expecting my first and only child at um, seven months pregnant, and I didn't have any community at all. Kristen moved in next door. We had heard a new family moved in, you know, saw them with their things. And, um, you know, when new people come in, I always love to take them cookies. So, I, you know, as a nice thing, but also to meet them, kind of see who they are. Um, I remember probably just talking about churches and saying, hey, we go to Rolling Hills. We'd love for you to come with us sometime. Over the years, she'd been putting, like, flyers in my mailbox every now and then for Rolling Hills or just mentioning it. I guess I would say over the years, I'd been um, kind of watching the Hunter family, and I've been seeing just how they are. They're really like the hands and feet of Jesus. I feel like I was going through a really hard time, and my lawn was overgrown one day, and I was, like, just simple things like that. And next thing you know, I see Kyle Hunter out there mowing my lawn, and I'm, like, inside crying because of just the kindness. And so I had seen their kindness like that, and I'd seen Sarah, you know, inviting me to mom gatherings, and um, I thought, you know what? like. It's gotta be something to this. Like I really like this family, and the, I know they're really involved in their church community. Um, I should really give Rolling Hills a try. So we went and loved it. 
It has been so amazing to see Kristen get plugged in. Um, I mean, she has just really jumped in. Um, it's been amazing to see her faith grow through the process too. Um, I mean, she's part of community group now. She um, is greeting, she's serving on Sunday mornings and she's an amazing greeter. Um, she And then just talking to her about, um, she's in a Bible study too, just talking to her about how that has grown her faith, things that she is learning um, and the way God is working in her life has been really, really neat to see. I mean, it's just so encouraging um, and just to know that, you know, the first time you invite somebody to church, they may not come. They may not come till years later, but it's, you know, it was God's timing and just that she is here now and plugging in now. And, you know, she was ready now. So it's been really neat to see that, that process and um, just how she's thriving at Rolling Hills. I also serve at the 930, sometimes at the 11. I'm a greeter. So you might see me at the New Here banner now, <laughs> helping other new people get connected. I really love helping new people also get plugged into the church, and so I think that's why I wanted to join the greeter team, because I wanted to give back in a hospitality type of way to help people, other people get connected, because the church has been such a big part of my life. I mean, honestly, the whole situation, I feel like I barely did anything. You know, I told someone I go to Rolling Hills, and if you would like to come, you're welcome to. I mean, that is, in my mind, that seems very insignificant, but clearly it's not. Like, the Lord can use that just tiny invitation, um, you know, that happened years ago to this moment kind of full circle where now we have someone who's plugged in, growing deeper in the Word, serving her church. Um, it's just amazing. So when you do zoom out from that to see it, it started with just saying, hey, I go to Rolling Hills, want to come with me? Um, it's really cool because that's really easy to do. I mean, there was not a lot to lose from me asking saying, hey, come to church with me. Um, so it's really neat to see how God can use that. And it does, like when we talk about um, just the influence that can have, I mean, that's affecting Kristen, that's affecting Tessa, like that is leaving a legacy and all you did was just invite someone to church. It feels good to be where we are now. I would say um, a year ago, if you would have asked me how life was going, I would have told you about my anxiety. And um, now, if you ask me how life is going, I'm going to tell you how good my God is and how awesome the community He's used to help us is. My favorite part of that whole thing was, if you asked me a year ago how life was, I would tell you about my anxiety. You know how big a burden that is. To walk around with fear, um, to walk around with shame, to walk around with frustration and to walk around with a, a literal hopelessness over whatever your situation and your circumstance is. Look at Matthew sitting behind a tax collector's table, amassing wealth for himself, but literally looking at the community that he was supposed to be a part of pass him by. And Jesus wants to take whatever that burden is, whatever that difficulty is, whatever that pain, whatever that, whatever the heavy load is that you're carrying and replace it with his love and his kindness and his mercy. When we look at this book, when we look at these words, just like any of the photos or the pictures that you take on any given day and the filter that you apply to them because you want to make them make them look good, make them feel good, make them make them represent you well. We all come to these words with an understanding of 
who God is and, and what that filter is. And ultimately, what Jesus came to do is to apply his mercy, and his love, his peace, his freedom to everything that we understand about God and ultimately to everything that we know and understand about ourselves. See, I think Matthew wanted his audience and all the audiences that would come after him to see Jesus the way that he did. Someone who could take away your sin, take away your difficulty, take away your pain, take away your burden, and apply his love to it. Matthew wanted people to see Jesus the way that he did. And ultimately, on any given day of the week, that's what we're called to do. Go out there into the world, find a neighbor, find a coworker, find a family member, find a friend, and help them see Jesus the way we do, the way that he really is. Savior of the world who came to offer us the loving kindness of God and who wants to equip us to walk in that loving kindness with others. All of our campuses and pastors have used this illustration time and time again. Everybody's heard of Penn and Teller, those magicians, illusionists, those people, I don't know, like out in Vegas or New York City or somewhere, just doing these crazy sold-out shows and these really, one of them doesn't talk and one of them's like really tall and loud and stuff. Well, the one that talks, um, Penn Gillette, he's a, 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 a self-proclaimed atheist and someone who does not believe in God, doesn't believe in higher power. And, and one of the, and I don't even know if it's some kind of crazy urban legend or myth, I think I've tracked it all down to say this is a real thing that he said out loud. If you are a person who believes in your God, in this case Jesus, and does not proselytize or tell other people to follow that God who is Jesus, then he, what in the world? How much, he says, do you have to hate somebody to believe that that's true and not tell them about it? He doesn't believe in people who, who don't share their gospel truth and don't invite others to know it. It's kind of a, it's kind of a sting in the ribcage of people who follow Jesus. When someone who doesn't follow Jesus looks at us and says, how much do you have to hate a person to not want to include them in the best news you've ever heard. Pharisees, the Jewish audience of Jesus' day, they didn't know God the way that they thought they did. Because how much did they hate another person in order to want to preclude them from knowing the goodness of God? To them, tax collector, outside the bounds of God's love, outside the bounds of my friendship, Jesus came with a new filter. Jesus came with a new filter and said the Messiah came for the sick, not the well. To call not the righteous, but to call sinners. And to remove their difficult burdens and allow them to carry a, a yoke of peace. And a yoke of love so that other people can come to know and experience that same Jesus too. How do you look at this book? How do you look at the testaments of truth that are in it? 
Maybe there's a filter that needs to go away because it's tainting the way that you see this. Maybe there's a filter that needs to be applied so that you can see God in a new light. And how are you approaching the people around you with a filter that shows them who Jesus really is and how very much he loves them? Or one that ultimately pushes people away and paints a very ugly picture of who Christ is? It's a pretty convicting thought for those of us who proclaim that we believe the words in here as truth. Would you pray with me? Father, it's our our greatest desire um, to be people who are classified and qualified as followers of Jesus. People who, who know him, but who also know how to make him known. God, today I ask you that you would just forgive me of all the moments in life where I've applied a negative image to you. And where by looking at me or understanding me, it would make people not want to know and follow your son. And what I ask, God, is that you would help me to live out the kind of life that represents Christ well so that others see Jesus and want to know and follow him. And ultimately, I pray that that would be a description of our church campus, God. That people would look at whatever filter we put on, whatever day of the week we put it on, and what they would ultimately see is a Christ who loves them and gave his life for them. They would encounter a God of mercy who wants to show that loving kindness to the whole world through us. Father, I pray for anyone in this room today who's who's on the fence and questioning what it means to know and follow Jesus. God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit working in their lives and whispering in their ear today, that they would want nothing more than to surrender their whole life to him and become a disciple, a follower, in the same way that Matthew did, that no one would leave this room feeling, I'm too far off, I'm too far gone, I'm too wicked to experience that love. But by the story presented to us today, they would know that none of us, are too far and outside the bounds of the mercy and the love that Jesus comes to give. It's in his perfect name that we pray today. Amen.